Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Western Civ, episode 247, Francisco Pizarro. This is one of those episodes where the title basically speaks for itself. We need to introduce the man who will, kind of, go on to conquer the powerful Inca Empire. Now, I say kind of because I need to give a major caveat with this story arc. We can say, almost without qualification, that Hernan Cortes conquered the Mexica-slash-Aztecs. Cortes was there from the beginning of the conquest until the fall of Tenochtitlan. That is not necessarily the case when it comes to Pizarro. As we're going to find out, it would probably be more correct to say that the Pizarros, plural, conquered the Inca, rather than Francisco Pizarro. As we're going to find out, this conquest is very much a Pizarro family affair. Francisco has brothers who are going to be just as, if not more, involved than he is in the conquest to come. So that gets us to what we need to know for our intro today. But before we get into the story, one quick ask. I don't always talk about this except at the very end of the show, but people who are willing to support the show via Patreon or Western Civ 2.0, they're kind of the, the folks who drive things here. The books are things that I have to purchase. The hosting, now thank you to the advertising, is free, and that's been a huge, huge saver. But there's still other expenses that I have to pay. So if you are so inclined, for $1 a month, that's $12 per year, you can get ad-free versions of the show delivered straight to your normal streaming listening service, whichever that is, through Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Western Civ Podcast. The link is in the show notes. It's really thanks to the people who are willing to chip in a buck or two bucks a month that make a big, big difference in what I am able to do. So I would really appreciate it if you think about it. If you do not have the capacity at this moment or the inclination, um, the other thing you could do is always give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or however you're listening, because that does help people find the show as well. Francisco Pizarro was shaped by the region he grew up in. It's called Extremadura 
in Western Spain. For the record, for those of you familiar with the topography of Spain today, Extremadura is now the modern providences of Badajoz and Carceres, and it's still the poorest region of Spain today. But it would be, of course, wrong for me to speak of Spain at this point, let alone provinces. Pizarro would have considered himself a citizen of Castile. Castile and Aragon still wouldn't formally be merged and wouldn't really become a country until after Pizarro's death. For ease in some of these episodes, I want to make it clear I am going to refer to Spain and will today for the balance, really, of this episode, but know that I do that so that you, as the listeners, can more easily understand the story today, not because that is what Pizarro would have thought. Now, Extremadura was arid and unsuitable for just about anything that made money in the 15th century. The region was known for producing good mercenaries, or at least lots of mercenaries. But that's about it. It would also, by the way, turn out that Extremadura was very good at producing explorers and conquistadors. A shocking number of major conquistadors and Spanish explorers come from Extremadura, including, of course, the Pizarro clan, Vasco de Núñez de Balboa, Ponce de Leon, and Hernando de Soto were all from this one region of Spain, Extremadura. Pizarro was born in 1478. He was, therefore, 15 years old when Columbus returned from his first voyage. Like everyone at that time in Spain, Pizarro would have listened in rapt fascination to the story of Columbus's voyage and dreamed about what a new world might mean for him. And I do mean listened to the story I will remind you of this throughout these episodes. But Pizarro remained illiterate throughout his entire life. Columbus's open letter describing his voyage hit Europe like a thunderbolt. The following letter was written to the king and queen of Castile and Aragon, Ferdinand and Isabella, but it was essentially openly published to Europeans and, and widely read throughout the continent. Columbus wrote, quote, I found very many islands filled with innumerable people, and I have taken possession of them for their highnesses, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, done by proclamation and with the royal standard unfurled, and no opposition was offered to me. People of this island, today uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic, and of all other islands I have found and of which I have gotten information, they all go naked, men and women, as well as their mothers bore them. They refuse nothing that they possess if it be asked of them. On the contrary, they invite anyone to share in it and play as much love as if it would give their hearts. They are content with whatever trifle of whatever kind may be given to them, whether it be of value or value less. Their highnesses can see that I will give the king and queen as much gold as they may need. I will give them spices and cotton and aloe and slaves as many as they shall order. I also believe 
I have found rhubarb and cinnamon, and I shall found a thousand other things of value. And thus, the eternal God, our Lord, gives to all those who walk in his way triumph over things that appear to be impossible. And this was notably one, with so many solemn prayers for the great exaltation, which they shall have in the turning of so many peoples to our holy faith. And afterwards, for the temporal benefits, because not only Spain, but all Christendom will have hence comfort and profits. Done, written, in the Caravel Nina, off the Canary Islands on the 15th day of February, in the year 1493, signed the Admiral. Now, to a young man growing up in Extremadura, the promises of that letter, things like as much gold as they may need, I mean, I can only imagine how that would have fired up the imagination of one teenaged Francisco Pizarro. And there just weren't a lot of opportunities for him. By the end of the 15th century, the class system in the Kingdom of Spain had been for centuries in place and for centuries a rigid one. Those at the top, and I'm talking about, you know, your aristocracy here, your dukes, your lords, so on and so forth. These guys own vast estates worked by peasants. They enjoyed all the privileges and social prestige of the late 15th century Spanish kingdoms. And I do mean legally too at this point, because Spain, even as it transitions out of a feudal system, codifies in very legal ways this class division. Those at the bottom, the peasants, the artisans, generally speaking, everyone who did manual labor, usually remained in the same class to which they were born. In the kingdoms of Spain, as elsewhere in Europe, there was little upward social mobility. If you were born poor, illiterate, and had no family pedigree, then, frankly, that is how you were going to die. You could read that as plainly as if you could read Columbus's letter. There were really only two ways for someone in the lower class to gain admittance to the elite. Either marriage to member of the elite, which was unbelievably rare, or you could distinguish yourself in a successful military campaign. Almost certainly like Hernan Cortes before him, Pizarro thought, where would be best for him to make his fortune? The wars in Italy were not ending anytime soon. He could go there. Many young men from that part of Spain did. But just like Cortes, Francisco Pizarro decided that he would roll the dice on the New World. Thus, in the year 1502, the landless Titleless, impoverished, Francisco Pizarro boarded a ship bound for the West Indies. This was one of the voyages of Columbus, and was, to date, the largest fleet ever to set sail to the land presently called the West Indies. It carried 2,500 men, as well as horses, pigs, and other animals. The procession that greeted the fleet in Hispaniola was overjoyed, telling the men 
You have arrived at a good moment, for there is to be a war against the Indians, and we will be able to take many slaves. End quote. Whether Pizarro participated in this war against the local natives, we do not know. But by 1509, he had become a lieutenant in the local militia. And at some point, we know that Pizarro left for an expedition to what is today Central America. By 1513, at the age of 35, he was second in command of an expedition led by Vasco Núñez de Balboa, the first European to set his foot in the Pacific. At the time, neither Balboa nor Pizarro gave a darn about the Pacific Ocean, however. They were just trying to find gold. They didn't, by the way. They trudged their way up and down the mosquito-infested jungles of what is today Panama. They never found any gold. Six years later, in January 1519, Balboa was arrested and executed. The order to do so came from Spain. But the man who carried it out was Pizarro. By 1521, Pizarro was one of the largest landowners in all of Panama. He was also 44 years old. He had just received an encomienda, essentially a plantation, that came with 150 native servants. But to the north in Mexico, Hernán Cortés had conquered an entire empire, and he had done it all before the age of 34. Now, one thing that I will probably mention over and over again is that Pizarro is a lot older in comparison to other conquistadors by the time he actually carries out his conquering. And for not the last time, I'm going to mention he was nearly a generation older than some other conquistadors by the time he finally got rid of Atahualpa and took control of Cusco in modern-day Peru. Pizarro was restless. He wanted more. The age of 35 to 45 was considered the prime of a man's life at that time in Spain. He wanted to make something happen right now. But the reality remained Pizarro was 10 years older than Cortés had been when Cortés began his conquests. And Pizarro had his work cut out for him. Especially because the New World seemed to be running out of empires. There did not seem to be anything north of Mexico worth looking into. So the only logical direction to go was south. By 1524, three years after Cortez's conquest, Pizarro had formed a company with two partners, Diego de Almargo, a fellow extremo, and a local financier named Hernando de Luque. We won't talk about him very much. The three men were following an economic model that had originated in Europe and was now spreading throughout the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean, the private corporation. By the early 16th century, Spain had gradually transformed from the age of feudalism to the age of capitalism. Under feudalism, all economic activities centered upon the manorial estate, owned by a lord who had been given his land grant or fee for benefice by a king to whom the Lord owed his allegiance. Other than the Lord and his family, maybe a parish priest and perhaps a few administrative officials, the entire population of a feudal estate consisted of serfs, 
These people who worked on the land, by and large, could not leave the land and created surplus agricultural produce for the Lord and his family. It was a system as rigid as it was simple. The Lord and his family did no manual labor, living at the peak of the social pyramid, while the peasant masses scratched out a pittance living below. Eventually, however, mostly thanks to gunpowder, Lord's castle walls were no longer the impregnable fortress that they were in the 1400s. Thus, they could no longer offer protection to their retinue of serfs. Gradually, these serfs migrated to towns and cities where commerce and the idea of working for a profit had begun to flourish. Men now often joined forces, pooling their resources, setting up companies, and hiring workers who were paid a wage. All profits now flowed to the owners, or capitalists, as they were called. And anyone with the requisite skills and the right connections could become an entrepreneur. The acquisition of wealth had now become a motive in and of itself. In 16th century Spain, therefore, if an individual could scrap together a substantial pile of wealth, he could use it to purchase what was now the equivalent of that manorial estate. The individual could then retire to a life of luxury and pass his capital on to his heirs. This was a universally new world order. There is a popular myth that I want to dispel. The myth that the conquistadors were sent forth by the Spanish king in order to expand an emerging Spanish empire, and that these were professional soldiers who were all financed by the king. Nothing could be further from the truth, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing. In reality, and we saw this with Cortez, the Spaniards who bought passages on the ships headed for the New World were just a representative sample of the people back home. There were cobblers, tailors, notaries, carpenters, sailors, merchants, ironworkers, blacksmiths, blah, 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 even professional musicians. Very few of these men had ever been professional soldiers. In fact, that would be hard because permanent professional armies hadn't even really appeared yet in Europe. And if you wanted to be a professional soldier, the place to be was northern Italy, not the New World. The vast majority of Spaniards traveled to the New World not because they were told to do so by the king, not because they were employees of the king, but as private citizens, hoping to acquire the wealth and status that eluded them at home. Men joined these expeditions, and be blunt here, in the hopes of getting rich. Period. Full stop. And what that means is, they hoped to find a large population of natives in order to strip them of their wealth and live off their labor. This was not a nice system. And I don't think any historian has ever said that it was. Each band of conquistadors, usually led by an older conquistador who had the most experience, was composed of a disparate group of men trained in all kinds of professions. None would get a payment or a wage for participating. The idea was that if you participated, you got a share in the profits gained by the conquest of the pillage, 
according to whatever you had invested in the expedition. That's going to be important, by the way, as we're going to see in this story. If you show up too late to the party, you don't get a share in the spoils. Now, if the same man provides things of use, like a horse, of course, you're going to get a much larger share. But that's not necessarily the rank and file. The leaders of most conquest expeditions, beginning in the 1520s, formed a company that was normally drawn up as a contract and notarized. This wasn't a group of feudal knights saying oaths of loyalty and riding off into the sunset. This was a corporation. The participants thus became partners in the company and were the equivalent of shareholders. Unlike companies dedicated to providing services or manufactured goods, however, it was understood from the outset that the conquest company's economic plan was predicated upon, and again, I'm going to be blunt, murder, torture, and plunder. Conquistadors were never paid soldiers, never emissaries of some distant Spanish king. Charles V didn't have the money to pay anybody. He got a fifth share of the profits for doing nothing, and he liked it that way. Wouldn't you? These were autonomous participants in a new kind of capitalist adventure. In short, to be honest with you, they're little more than armed entrepreneurs. By 1524, the then 46-year-old Pizarro and his two partners had formed a conquest company called the Company of the Levant. Remember, these conquistadors still believed they were doing God's work in all of this. The two captains of the enterprise, Pizarro and Amalgo, had participated in expeditions together since at least 1519. This was an incredible amount of experience for the times. Cortez had virtually no hands-on experience when he set out to conquer Mexico. By his standard, Pizarro would be considered a grizzled veteran. Even Almagro had been in the New World for over a decade, though his conquistadoring experience was decidedly less than Pizarro. But Almagro was a genius organizer. His job was to provision the upcoming expedition. As one Spanish chronicler put it, Almargo was, quote, a man of short stature with ugly features, but with great courage and endurance. He was generous, but was conceited and given to boasting, letting his tongue run, sometimes without a stop. He was sensible, and above all, was greatly afraid of offending the king, ignoring the opinions that others may have of him. I, the chronicler, will only say that he was born of such humble parentage that one could say that his lineage began and ended with himself, end quote. That is to say, like Pizarro, Almargo was illiterate and a bastard. Now, for a number of years, the Europeans in the New World had heard rumors of this fabled golden land to the south. Somewhere south of Panama City, so the legend went, there was an empire so wealthy, it put Mexico to shame. In the early correspondence, this land is referred to as Viru with a V, or Biru with a B, which is how the modern-day country gets its name, Peru. Pizarro and Almargo decided to have a crack at finding this land in 1524. But 
After a year, they turned around, having found nothing. I know this is so hard for us to understand today because we look at a a map and it's just so obvious where South America is. But we need to remember that these Europeans, at least, had no clue how large South America was. And, I mean, to put it by comparison, heck, even in 1800, Europeans and then Americans still hoped that there was a water route from the east to the west coast of North America, and there wasn't. And Pizarro is operating almost 300 years earlier. But the two men refused to be deterred. In 1526, Pizarro and Almagro set out on another expedition. This one would last two years until 1528. This was a larger expedition with 160 men. This time, Pizarro and Almagro sensed they might be onto something. Soon, off the coast of what is Ecuador today, the crew was surprised to see a sail in the distance. They'd never seen anything like this in the Caribbean. As the Spaniards drew nearer, they were astonished to find a giant ocean-going balsa wood raft powered by finely woven cotton sails and manned by numerous native soilers. Eleven of the twenty-two natives on board immediately leapt into the sea. The Spaniards captured the rest. After seizing the contents of the mysterious vessel, the delighted entrepreneurs later described their first haul of booty in a letter that they sent back to King Charles. Quote, they, the Inca, were carrying many pieces of silver and gold as personal ornaments, and also crowns and diadems, belts, bracelets, leg armor and breastplates, tweezers, rattlers, strings and clusters of beads, rubies, mirrors adorned with silver, and cups and other drinking vessels. They were carrying many wool and cotton mantles and other pieces of clothing, all richly made and colored with scarlet, crimson, blue, yellow, and all other colors, and worked with different types of ornate embroidery, including figures of birds, animals, and fish, and trees. They had some tiny weights to weigh gold in the Roman manner, and there were bead bags full of some small stones of emeralds and other jewels and pieces of crystal. They were taking all of this to trade for fish shells, from which they make counters, coral, colored, and white, they were carrying almost a full shipload of these, end quote. This sea-going raft was Pizarro's real first piece of proof that somewhere nearby, a native kingdom had to exist, and it had to be sophisticated. This was a way more sophisticated ocean-going vessel than anything the Spanish had encountered in the Caribbean. Unfortunately. As Pizarro continued, the ship's stores dwindled, and the Spaniards began to get sick. Then one by one, they started to die. By the time the three or four Spaniards were dying a week, their morale hit a low point. Not surprisingly, the men wanted to go back to Panama. Pizarro, however, the sort of co-CEO of an expedition that had just found evidence of a possible wealthy kingdom, refused to be deterred. 
By now, he was nearly 50 years old. It had taken Pizarro a quarter of a century to command an expedition for which he stood to gain the lion's share of the profits. As many later chroniclers noted, Pizarro normally did very little talking, but he was strong when it came to action. But when sufficiently motivated, Pizarro could be counted upon to deliver quite the motivational speech. Thus, when the relief ships finally did arrive, and his men made ready to abandon the expedition and return to Panama, Pizarro is said to have taken out his sword in frustration, and he etched a line in the sand, drawing literally a line in the sand, with a sharpened point. And then he dramatically confronted the men, saying, quote, Gentlemen, this line signifies labor, hunger, thirst, fatigue, wounds, sickness, and every other kind of danger that must be encountered in this conquest until life is ended. Let those who have the courage to meet and overcome the dangers of this heroic achievement cross the line in token of their resolution and as a testimony that they will be my faithful companions. And let those who feel unworthy of such daring return to Panama, for I do not wish to use my force upon any man. I trust in God that for his greater honor and glory, his eternal majesty will help those who remain with me, though they be few and that we shall not feel the want of those who forsake us, end quote. Ultimately, only 13 men crossed over the line. The rest of the Spaniards decided to return to Panama. So I guess it wasn't that good of a speech. With their remaining ship, Pizarro and his tiny group of volunteers continued down the coast into territory that no other European had hitherto explored. Slowly, as the Spaniards sailed south, the forests and mosquitoes began to retreat until at the very northern tip of what is today Peru, they finally sailed into view of what Pizarro had been searching for and dreaming about for years. A native city, complete with more than a thousand buildings, broad streets, and what looked to be ships in the harbor. The year was 1528, and this was the Empire of the Inca. And for the small band of bedraggled Spaniards who had been traveling for more than a year, and many of whom were as gaunt as skeletons, they were about to have their first real contact with the Inca. As the Spanish moored offshore, they soon saw a dozen balsa rafts set out from the shore. Pizarro knew that because his men were few in numbers, he couldn't possibly try to conquer such a large city. Instead, he would have to rely on diplomacy in order to learn more about who these people were, what they had just stumbled upon. As the native rafts drew nearer, the Spaniards buckled on their armor and readied their swords for battle. Were the natives going to be hostile, or would they be friendly? Were there more cities? Did they have gold? Was this a simple city-state or part of a larger kingdom? One can only imagine Pizarro and the other Spaniards' relief to discover that not only were the natives friendly, but they arrived with gifts of food that included a particular type of, they thought, lamb. It was actually yama meat. Exotic fruits, fish, jugs of water, and chica, which the Spaniards would soon learn is a type of beer. One of the natives who climbed on board the ship was a man who obviously was in command. 
The native was well-dressed in a patterned cotton tunic and had elongated earlobes with large wooden plugs in them, something that none of the other natives wore. Unable to communicate apart from basic hand gestures, this Inca official, that's what he was, nonetheless astonished the Spanish with his ability to communicate. Pizarro, in truth, just wanted to know if there was gold. But he was smart enough not to reveal that. He worked to conceal the true purpose of his mission while simultaneously trying to learn as much as he could about the land and its people. Pizarro presented the Inca official with a few gifts, including two pigs. He ordered two of his men to accompany the official back to the shore. The Inca inhabitants of the town turned out to marvel at the two exotic visitors, one of whom was an African slave. They, quote, all came out to see the sow and the boar and the hens, delighting in hearing the rooster crow. But all that was nothing compared to the commotion created by the black man. Because they saw that he was black, they looked him over and over again and made him wash to see if his blackness was color or some kind of applied confection. But he laughed, showing his white teeth, as some came to see him, and then others, so many that they did not even give him time to eat. He walked here and there, and wherever they went to see him, as something so new, and by them they had never seen before. And as to the Spaniard, quote, They looked at how the Spaniard Molina had a beard that was white. They asked him many things, but he understood nothing. The children, the old and the women, all looked at them delightedly. The Spaniards saw many buildings and remarked on many things, irrigation channels, many planted fields, fruit, and some sheep, actually, Yamas. Many Indian women, very beautiful and well-attired and dressed according to their customs, came to talk to him. They all gave him fruits and whatever they had in order for him to take them to the ship. They used gestures to ask where the Spaniards were going and where they were had come from. Among those Indian women who were talking to him was a very beautiful lady, and she told him to stay with them, and that they would give one of them to him as a wife, whichever one he wanted. And when he, the Spaniard, arrived back at the ship, he was so overwhelmed by what he had seen that he didn't say anything. He finally said that their houses were of stone, and before he spoke to the Lord, the local Inca governor, he passed through three gates where they had gatekeepers, that they served him in cups of silver and gold. Subsequently, Pizarro sent a landing party to verify what the two had to say. They, quote, saw silver vessels and many silversmiths working, and that on some walls of the temple there were gold and silver sheets, and that the women were called the sun, were very beautiful. The Spaniards were ecstatic to hear so many things, hoping with God's help to enjoy their share of it, end quote. With their ships laden down with fresh food, Pizarro and his men continued down the coast. Pizarro himself did go to the shore in a canoe at one point. According to a source, he said, quote, By my witness, I take possession of this land with all else that has been discovered by us for the emperor, our lord, and for the royal crown of Castile, end quote. Pursuant to the laws of Spain, everyone in South America had just become subjects of the King of Castile. Sadly, they did not know that yet. They would find out in due course, but when they did, they would be running from Spanish horses 
and dying from European diseases. Nazaro's expedition, from his perspective, had been a complete success. On board their ship, they now carried a never-before-seen alpaca and two native boys. All in all, not a bad first haul. The records do record they baptized the boys for good measure. No word as to the alpaca. But Pizarro could hardly rest easy as his ship returned to Panama. He now faced the same issue Cortez faced in Mexico. He needed a legal right to conquer this untouched empire. If he did not get it, then some other Spaniard would just come along and scoop it up. It was crucial that the king and queen sign off on his right to conquer the Inca. Granted, he didn't really know who the Inca were, or have any sense as to where their empire stretched, but he needed the right to conquer them all the same. And the present king, Charles V of Spain, new king since Pizarro left home, didn't really care where the Incan Empire was either. He only cared if they had gold. And so no sooner had Pizarro returned to Panama than he booked passage to Spain, a kingdom he had not seen in 30 years. Pizarro reached Seville in 1528, more than a dozen years after Queen Isabella and then King Ferdinand, the two monarchs who had sponsored the initial voyage he left on, had died. Their 28-year-old grandson, Charles V, now ruled Spain. It had been nearly three decades since the impoverished Pizarro left home. He had come back a significantly richer man. He also came back as one of the most experienced conquistadors in the New World. Pizarro hoped to leverage his discovery of this new and wealthy land he called Peru into the legal right to conquer and rule the same in the name of the king. But he quickly found out that he was far from the man of the hour. The 43-year-old Hernán Cortés had also returned. And he had returned with heaps of treasure that would have impressed Alexander the Great. Pizarro had words and promises. Cortés had gold. I think you can guess who got more attention from the royal officials. There was much Pizarro, though, could learn from Cortés. The bottom line was that Charles V ruled a vast domain, but he was perennially in need of cash. Purchasing the Holy Roman Imperial Crown had cost him a veritable fortune. He needed the New World to pay for it. What Pizarro quickly realized was that gold could buy forgiveness. Cortez's spectacular display had had its desired effect. Although Cortez had risked conquering the Aztec-slash-Mexica with no official permission, King Charles brushed that aside and marveled at everything he was shown, honoring the great conqueror by having Cortez sit beside him. The king then anointed Cortez with the title of Marquis, named him the Captain General of Mexico, granted him a state of 23,000 Mexica vassals, and also granted him 8% of all future profits derived from his conquests. At one stroke of the royal pen, Cortes officially became one of the richest men in Europe, as well as one of the most famous. Now, after having secured royal patronage, 
Cortes and his conquest would be safe from the predations of other Spaniards. With the visit of Cortes fresh in his mind, King Charles gave Pizarro a friendly reception when he came. Although it had taken him 30 years, Pizarro had clearly moved up in the world. For now, the former peasant from Extremadura was having an audience with one of the most powerful rulers in Europe. Charles V was not only the monarch of the kingdoms of Spain, but the ruler of Netherlands, parts of what are now Austria and Germany, the kingdoms of the two Sicilies, an assortment of islands in the Caribbean, the Isthmus of Panama, and, thanks to Cortes, Mexico. Before the king and his court, Pizarro brought out the llamas, the native clothing, vessels, pottery, and other goods, and then described what he and his men had seen recently in this explored part of the world. He talked about the well-ordered city he had seen, its buildings, inhabitants, intricately cut stones, and especially the interior walls lined with gleaming sheets of gold. The normally quiet conquistador apparently made a very good sales pitch this time. Because in July of 1529, while the king was on his way to his coronation, Queen Isabella, this is a different Queen Isabella, remember, you think back to the Charles episodes, this is Isabella of Portugal, now married to Charles V. Anyway, she signed a contract stating as follows. Quote, the exclusive right to conquer the unexplored land of Peru. As for you, Captain Francisco Pizarro, because of the desire that you have to serve us, you would like to continue the said conquest and settlement at your own cost and upkeep so that we are at no time obliged to pay you or satisfy the expenses you might have in it, except what was granted to you in this agreement. First, I give permission and authority to you, that's Pizarro that for us, and in our name, and in that of the royal crown of Castile, you may continue the said discovery and conquest and settlement of the province of Peru up to 200 leagues, about 700 miles, of land along the same coast. And understanding that you are the executor in the service of God, our Lord, and ours, and to honor your person and to benefit you and grant you favor, we promise to make you our governor and captain general of all the province of Peru, land, and villages that are present and will later be within the entire 200 leagues for all days of your life, with a salary of 725,000 maravides each year, counted from the day that you set sail from these our kingdoms to continue the said settlement and conquest. This should be paid to you from the income and interest belonging to us in the said land that you would thus settle. Further, we grant you the title of our governor of said province of Peru, as well as the office of marshal of the same, all this for the rest of the days of your life. End quote. The terms of the contract were about as good as Pizarro could have hoped for. However, there remained one major obstacle. He was required to raise the funds for the expedition on his own. He needed the normal kinds of provisions for any expedition, ships, food, fodder, etc., but then Pizarro also needed everything one needed to conquer a people. Swords, guns, knives, horses, crossbows, and of course, fighting men. This wasn't going to be cheap, but Pizarro knew he needed to keep the immediate costs down. His hope was to be able to cover the cost of the expedition 
with the proceeds from said expedition. That meant he would not be able to pay for that much up front. The men turned out to be the easy part because Pizarro knew just where to look. Shortly after getting his contract, Pizarro made straight for his hometown of Trujillo. There he met with scores of impoverished young men, young men who had been just like him, without hope. He offered them the promise of gold and encomiendas in the new world, and they signed up in droves. Virtually no questions asked. Interestingly, as a quick side note, we also know that shortly after Pizarro got his contract, he met with Hernan Cortez. We have no idea what the two men said to each other. Did Cortez have advice for the new but older conquistador? Frankly, given how Pizarro behaved once he got to Peru, I have to imagine he did. Pizarro is essentially going to follow the Cortez blueprint, if we can call it that, from the moment he arrives in the Inca Empire. I think it very unlikely this all happened by pure chance. And so at last, in January 1530, Pizarro set sail from Seville. The second major war of Spanish conquest in the New World was formerly underway. The Mexica had already fallen under the weight of the guns, horses, and European disease. Now it was the Inca's turn to see how they might fare. But next week, before we begin said conquest, I want to take a moment and look at Inca history in the decades immediately preceding Pizarro's arrival. Because some very important events have transpired. (laughs) 